0: This is Dr. Aaron Warner, and welcome back to the Independent Insights, where we share quick conversations on topics relevant to running efficient, profitable, and effective independent private practices while providing the best best care for our patients. Uh, thanks to Vision Source, whose mission it is to enable independent optometrists to achieve their full potential, for supporting these conversations. Today's conversation uh, does all of this except for the quick part. Uh, it was a fantastic conversation with my new friend, Dr. Mark Rourke, and. Uh, We're about double the time we normally are, but that's because contrast sensitivity discussion was just really engaging and exciting, and so we wanted to to cover as much as we can. Uh, We talked about a lot. We've added a lot of links into the show notes so that uh, you can follow along, so check those out. We've even got uh, Dr. Mark Rourke's email in there. Uh, He is very passionate, as you you will hear, on contrast sensitivity, and anything he can do to help you and I uh, do better with it or get it up and running in the practice or discuss, he's more than happy to do so. So please enjoy the conversation. Uh, Leave any questions. Share the conversation with a friend. And, of course, leave us a good review. Thanks. You've got the academic background. In fact, I saw on your your uh, office website that you uh, spoke at the ocular or brain and ocular nutrition conference in Cambridge. So it's right. one thing to speak around the U.S., but uh, an invite to Cambridge is a pretty big deal. And uh, so you've managed that, and you're you're in private practice. So it, you hit two things I'm excited about.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, and cool. I think um, you know whenever we talk about incorporating something new into our protocol. Um, I think, you know, as eye care providers, there are so many things vying for our attention. There's new technologies being introduced, you know, all the time, very frequently, many more on the horizon, and we have a limited time with each patient. So, you know, we can be creatures of habit, we have set protocols, and it can be challenging even to convince a provider to add another, um, you know, test into his regimen, protocol. um, And you have to be convinced and should be that the information you're obtaining is worth the time and effort that you spend and that it's going to be a good investment for your practice and improve patient care. So I'm going to try to demonstrate through this talk today uh, those points and uh, I'm open to, again, questions anytime along the way.
0: Awesome. Well, let's jump in and, and, uh, and get started.
1: So let's just talk about visual performance in general. What do we mean when we talk about visual performance? So I think a good definition is just the ability of the visual system when it's stimulated by light energy to gather, to process information. And that leads to the perception of multiple aspects, different aspects of the visual world and allows for the neurological integration of what we see with other body systems. So there are lots of different ways we do measure visual performance um, in our office. We can measure glare um, for uh, cataract before cataract referrals. Uh, we do photo stress, dark adaptation, color vision. Uh, we can do visual fields. Those are all forms of visual performance measurements. But uh, another key measure that we all do and should do is measuring visual acuity. So that's a routine thing that everybody does and as well we should. Um, What we maybe tend not to do and really should be doing as well is another very important measure of vision that is known as contrast sensitivity. That's actually more closely related to real world visual function. So if we just think about visual acuities, you know, what are we doing here? We're looking at and measuring the eyes ability to resolve high contrast targets. Typically, you know, black on white. So that's a pretty easy measure for most patients. It doesn't challenge them maybe as much. Um, It's great for refractions and for determining changes in focus. Um, It's not really as uniform as you might like Uh, it to be in chart designs and methods of testing. But the most important thing, really, is the ability to function in activities of daily living cannot be reliably predicted. Based on visual acuity readings alone, and there have been some attempts to make visual acuity charts better. Um, You're designing things like the ETDRS chart, where you have a uniform series of these specific letter octotypes that are designed and selected to be equally legible. Uh, We call them the Sloan letters, Um, and that helps. And you can have uniform face, you know, spacing again, logarithmic steps, and all. And that's helpful, but it still doesn't eliminate, you know, doesn't remove all the the limitations of visual acuity testing. So if we just talk about contrast sensitivity testing to contrast it here, uh, we would define it and we usually uh, express it in terms of a contrast sensitivity threshold. So that's really the minimum difference between the luminance of the target and the luminance of the background that's required to recognize the target. It's normally expressed as a percentage, also typically in logarithmic steps. If we talk about contrast sensitivity, it's just the reciprocal of the threshold. And then we normally do photopic uh, contrast sensitivity testing, meaning we have the background that's bright. If we did it with a dim background, that's mesopic uh, contrast sensitivity testing, which is done in some research. But what, really this, what we're really finding here is we're determining or defining the border between what's visible and what's invisible. So we're taking a target, a letter, let's say, and we're making it fainter and fainter and determining how faint we can make it until it's invisible to the patient. Um, historically, it's interesting. We might think, well, contrast sensitivity has been around for a few years, <clears throat> um, but many people don't realize that actually was um, looked at and measured um, back in the 1700s, early 1700s, uh, in France by a scientist named Bouguer, And he had uh, two candles and a screen and a wooden rod. <clears throat> and one candle was close to the screen, provided uniform lum- illumination, uh, and then the other candle was behind the rod, which was close to the screen, and cast a shadow. And he could simply back away further and further until you could no longer detect the edge of the shadow. And that was a way of measuring contrast sensitivity, uh, a lot more cumbersome than the ways we have now. But interestingly, uh, this early research uh, in the human eye reported a threshold of around 1.6%, which as we'll get to is actually very similar to the measurements we're getting today. So it's just kind of interesting, the, the history of contrast sensitivity. And I think it's probably had uh, last fifty years or so. It's been uh, used somewhat in research, but again, really hasn't made it. I think into mainstream optometric care for being a part of our normal testing procedure.
0: Um, well, that's super so, again, interesting. That the history. The um, yeah. It just made me think that that we use it frequently, and I didn't dawn on it earlier with, with infants, and the infants see in their, uh, the infancy and their the first choice. Tests right. Those are, are are all the at least the, the the instruments we use are all contrast sensitivity tests. Yeah. So cool. how, mm. how do you explain contrast sensitivity when you're talking about it to to patient? Yeah, that's a great a, question. It's a quick um, bullet point.
1: So, really, it enables us to see edges and borders in a scene. So, in our visual system, we have a wide range of different light intensities, levels of contrast that are presented to us in the everyday world. So we can identify, you know, the the, um, the edges, borders, and the the characteristics of the you know, facial contour, things like that. When we have good contrast sensitivity, and then when we have things like cataracts or macrodegeneration degeneration that develop over time, uh, sometimes our visual acuity measurements are fairly similar; they're fairly stable over time. Um, and we really need a tool that more accurately captures the response of our visual system um, as, you know, as things change. And it's a much more sensitive way to determine how, what kind of visual impact those diseases, it could even be lack of good macronutrition, what kind of impact mm-hmm. is that really having on our visual performance? And contrast sensitivity is an excellent tool to determine that.
0: Cool. So this could really help us understand that unhappy 2020 or 2025 patient.
1: Absolutely. Yes, I think that's a real uh, uh, important way this, this technology can be used. If we think about it, you know, contrast is so important in our visual world. So think about walking down a, a, a set of steps in a dim environment that are carpeted, say black carpet, it'd be very easy to trip and fall because there's so little contrast. But now if you take a piece of white tape and you put it along the top edge of each step, you can easily see where you need to put your foot. (laughs) You're much less likely to fall coming down the stairs because you've got that contrast. So Mm -hmm. again, the stability to function and activities of daily living, it's highly dependent on our ability to perceive this contrast in our environment when we're driving. Hopefully we have, um, you know, arrows that are white on the black or dark pavement, why are they white instead of gray? Well, we want to enhance the contrast so we can see them better. So really, I think it's it's worth the effort to do contrast-sensitivity testing uh, because if you have poor contrast-sensitivity, it increases the risks for falls, increases the risk for automobile accidents. And it's also associated with glare and other visual complaints, even in those who have good visual acuities and we may not be able to understand or explain uh, the, the patient's complaints unless we measure uh, their ability, uh, their contrast sensitivity. And, and again, among older adults, we think about uh, you know, one of the leading causes of accidental injuries and deaths uh, in the US, it's, it's falls. So one in three adults over the age of 65 falls every year. And impaired contrast sensitivity is one of the strongest visual risk factors for falls. Um, there are patients who have cataracts with pretty good visual acuity. They may not complain even a whole lot. And I've had this happen as I've measured it in my practice. I look at their cataract and you know sometimes it's kind of on the borderline. Do this patient Does this patient need cataract surgery now? How much is this really impacting vision? When I measure contrast sensitivity and I find it's poor, it's it's worse than 5%, higher than 5% on the threshold. I know that if if that's the only pathology that is causing changes in vision, I know that patient needs cataract surgery. And so it helps you really understand uh, which patients you need to be more proactive with in regard to their management for surgery and those kinds of things. Very cool. If we just talk about how to measure it, um, you know, it's been done historically a couple of different ways. So you can measure it with sine waves, uh, where you have these light and dark bars, and they they change gradually, kind of in a sinusoidal sinusoidal fashion, to create a complete uh, cycle. And you can, you know, pack those bars very tightly and create a high spatial frequency, which is like a small target, if you will. Um, or you can spread those bars out to more intermediate spatial or low spatial frequencies. So that's been done historically and you can take those sine waves and you can reduce the contrast. You can orient them in different directions to determine whether the observer is able to still see them and identify and identify them. So that's been done in a lot of research. Um, But I think really clinicians and patients are used to letters. So you can also measure contrast sensitivity, which is how I do it, with letter targets. And those can also be expressed in terms of a kind of a cycles per degree, just like we do with sine waves or with the VA uh, nomenclature. Uh, 2020 ends up being 30 cycles per degree. That's the closest approximation. And then we'll be talking more about a 2100 size target in our contrast sensitivity testing So that would be uh, a six CPD target. So that's kind of important to keep in mind as we talk here a little bit. 2100, six CPD, those are key numbers to understand when you're talking about measuring letter, uh, uh, contrast sensitivity using letter targets.
0: Okay, for for everybody listening, we're going to add, we're going to put some links in the uh, uh, in the the show notes so we don't have to pull the car over and jot down all these numbers right now. All right, we're going sure, exactly. to give some uh, some cheap sheets that you got for us. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then if we think about ways of measuring, so there was, a, you know, again, an interest in measuring contrast sensitivity with letter charts, physical charts. Um, and so back in 1988, the, the most well-known one uh, was, was called the Pelly robson chart. Um, all the letters are the same size and they're presented in triplets with a decrease or increasing changes in the contrast so you could actually measure how far let's say down this chart a patient could read until the letter was too faint for them to see you normally do kind of two out of three at that level to decide where the the, the uh, endpoint is the threshold that was kind of one of the main charts that was available for a while it does have some disadvantages because you know you have to Um, It can fade over time. You have to be careful about illumination, reflections. There are limited numbers of these charts and patients could even memorize the letters. So those are used in research. They're probably not used. They're sometimes used in low vision uh, analysis. Um, But I think a a more convenient way to measure contrast sensitivity is really to use an electronic chart. I think most of us have those in our exam lanes now we use them for measuring visual acuity. Um, so we can also do this same kind of test on the LCD screen or LED screen, and we just show project a, can, let's say, a 2100 letter, and we can easily reduce the uh, the contrast in that letter <clears throat> until eventually it becomes invisible to the to the observer. Um, so the question would probably come up, well. How does that method, in terms of its validity, compare to the pelley test? And fortunately, there was a study done in 2013 that compared them. And so for both normal and diseased eyes, uh, the conclusion of the study was the testing with the electronic chart uh, using this method called the Harris contrast test. Uh, which we'll describe a bit more, uh, with individual slung letters. So, again, you isolate a single letter that needs to be a slung letter. Again, so they're equally legible. And uh, it's a good alternative to peli robson which is the gold standard, and there was a good validation study so we can have confidence that when we're doing it this way, it's also a, a valid method. Um, so what that means is we can do a rapid assessment of uh, contrast sensitivity and... Um, with a distance refraction in place um, right at a 20-foot 20, 20 distance. Um, and then the question is probably going to be asked, well, what target size should we use? So you can do a contrast sensitivity test at a, you know, each different letter size and create kind of a curve. But from a practical standpoint, that's not going to work in my clinic. <laughs> you need to be able to do it efficiently. It would take a long time to do it multiple times all different letter sizes. So uh, what target size should we measure? So we can find some research uh, from Osley and Sloan from 1987. And in their study, they compared to other factors that were predicting performance, including age. Contrast sensitivity test contrast sensitivity at 6 CPD or 2100 uh, is the most strongly related to real world vision and the ability to what? To detect Uh, and identify faces, signs, objects, real-world things. And I think the real interesting thing in this study too is that um, although it's still an important measure, uh, visual acuity was not a significant contributor uh, in this study. So uh, that helps us understand how important contrast sensitivity really is in perceiving the world, in our visual world. Um, and then if you look at <clears throat> that 60pd, so if you, if you take, let's say, a sine wave pattern, um, you can change the size of the you know, s- spatial frequency from high to low, and you can also make each of those uh, very faint. You can go fainter and fainter, and you can create a curve. But what you're going to find here is the visual system shows the highest contrast sensitivity or the, the lowest threshold to the intermediate target sizes that would correspond to this 2100 or a bit larger letter size. So knowing that, that's like the peak area of sensitivity in our visual world. So everything below this curve, if you can imagine a curve, it's kind of almost like a bell-shaped curve, everything below was seen by that observer when the test was done. And everything above that line is invisible So if we can do something that improves contrast sensitivity through nutrition, through cataract surgery, through other means, um, we are actually raising that whole curve upward, and we're increasing the size of the visible world. And some of the things that were invisible before are now visible, which is pretty cool. (laughs)
0: That's cool. That's really cool.
1: So... When we measure visual acuity, we're looking at high contrast targets that are very small. So we just aren't capturing um, that important part of the curve, if you will, unless we test these larger targets and do contrast sensitivity testing. So when I do this in my exam lane, um, I can go through those steps. Um, And Also, there'll be some handouts here available as well that will will be listed. But basically, we're going to measure this contrast sensitivity in our exam lane monocularly. We'll do it one eye at a time. Uh, We're going to have the best distance prescription in place. And we do not want to do uh, the test with a dilated pupil. So we want our pupil in its normal size, undilated. We're going to turn the room lights off we don't need it blacken in the room. We just wanted to test in a dim room and that's actually matches the way um, the screen calibration, the contrast sensitivity thresholds are measured in the testing process. So we're gonna isolate uh, a 2100 or six CPD Sloan letter on this properly calibrated electronic chart. So it's very important if you're gonna be doing this that the background illumination is set to a certain level. So some manufacturers, um, you would need to talk to the manufacturer. I use the M um, and S system, then they have the properly calibrated uh, background, <clears throat> and so you project a five percent contrast sense uh, letter, a letter with five percent contrast. You ask the patient, "Can you see this letter?" Sometimes I'll tell them what it is just to get the thing rolling. Um, Can you see the faint Z? And then if they say yes, you just decrease the contrast. Um, and you ask the patient again as you go to identify the letter. You As you get close to the threshold, you have to allow a few seconds for the response to occur. Uh, it takes a little while for the patient sometimes to, to visualize it. And then you simply record the lowest level of contrast where at least two of three of these random letters you presented are correctly identified. Um, and you document that result for each eye. You might put you know, CST at 6 CPD for OD is 2.0%, for OS is 2.5%. So <clears throat> you're basically testing the single intermediate target size. It takes about one minute per eye. Um, so that's the time investment you're talking about. Uh, but it does add essential insight into the patient's real world visual performance that really was not captured with high contrast visual testing alone. If you find a big difference between the two eyes in the absence of known pathology, that's gonna require an explanation just as it would if you found a big difference in visual acuity between two eyes without an obvious reason. So it's gonna alert you to a lot of information about how the patient is seeing. So really, it's kind of an easy as, you know, one, two, three, you update your refraction, you leave it there in front of the patient, uh, you have your visual acuity already documented, and then you do this test. So I just do this at the exam uh, uh, end of each uh, refraction in the exam lane. And again, I've gotten so accustomed to doing this test, I, I really can't imagine not having this information now. I've gotten so accustomed to it. I feel so like you're doing I it just, on,
0: every, on everybody then, just routinely? Or or you... um,
1: yeah, I mean, we young children know. Uh, but definitely, teenagers can respond to the test, and most adults.
0: Uh,
1: so the great majority of patients, you certainly can do this test on, and can get some valuable information um, in a short period of time. So I think one of the important things anyone who's starting to do this is going to need to understand is, you know, how do I interpret these results? Patients, we all understand visual acuities, are all versed in that. Patients are used to that. The patients by and large have never had this test done, they're intrigued by it, and then you want to tell them about the results. So <clears throat> I have a contrast sensitivity guide um, that I use in the exam lane. It's a laminated guide that I created in, uh, with MACU Health help, and uh, this guide, I would strongly recommend you get a copy of it for each of your exam lanes. It is available through MACU Health. I do speak for uh, MACU Health. have done that for a number of years and, and really appreciate their products. And they made this contrast sensitivity uh, guide available to anyone who wants it. Um, it. You can get it through your sales rep or call or customer service. But it will show you some pictures um, illustrating impaired contrast versus excellence. And you'll see arrows along the bottom um that will help you understand and you can show the patient on the chart where they scored it's color coded so green is good and red is bad (laughs) and you have kind of a variation variation of colors between and these are all set in 0.1 logarithmic steps so the reason we do that when we go from 2020 to 2025 in our visual acuity charts that's 0.1 a logmar mm-hmm. step, and then from 2025 to 2032, and 2032 to 2040, those are all 0.1 logarithmic steps. So we kept the same convention in expressing contrast sensitivity thresholds. And then, if you look at you know what's normal or average, so we would generally say a score of two to 2.5 percent is considered average. That's not necessarily great; it's it's average, but many patients let's say, who don't have enough macronutrition would do better if they increase their macropigments. Um, So generally we say the expected range, if you will, of normal for a younger patient, say 60 and below, is about 1.6 to 2.5 percent. And above age 60, we would drop that a line, so 2.0 to 3.2 percent would be considered uh, in an acceptable or average range for patients above age 60. Uh, we would define visual impairments, um, meaning if your contrast sensitivity is 4% or worse or higher, the threshold is 4% or higher, then you're likely to have some that's likely to have some significant impact on your visual performance. If you actually hit 10% contrast sensitivity or worse, that's very likely to have severe visual impact. So those are kind of the references we should be familiar with. There are some studies that show patients um, who have wrecks, let's say accidents, and Mm -hmm. take the group that had accidents. um, If your contrast sensitivity is worse than 5%, so as we'd be measuring, let's say 6.3% in each eye or worse, you are six times more likely to be found in that group with crashes and <laughs> crashes yeah. uh, and if it was just one eye it was about three times more likely so there's definitely links between these measurements and real-world visual performances uh, one thing that you have to keep in mind when you're measuring contrast sensitivity is just like visual acuity it's a non-specific test so mm-hmm. it could be reduced you could get a poor number for a patient who has perfectly healthy eyes and everything you can check, but they have very poor macronutrition. Their threshold may be elevated. It will also be reduced in numerous disease states such as cataracts, um, AMD, Fuchs dystrophy, you know, on and on you can name things, dry eye with central corneal staining. There are a lot of things that impact it. So as clinicians, we have to, when we see this number and we see it's reduced, we have to investigate and figure out, you know, what is the likely reason for this reduction in contrast sensitivity.
0: Um, so if we if we see the reduced contrast sensitivity, and it, I think on dry eye it, it makes perfect sense, right? Central corneal staining. We, mm-hmm. we clear that up. We clean it up with tears and, and other treatments. Uh, we would expect it to probably improve quickly once the, mm-hmm. the staining is gone. What about with uh, on those that have low? Nutrition, uh, ocular nutrition. Yeah, that's a good question. How quick do you see the, the change when you come bring it back to major?
1: So, you know, the, I would say it will vary. Um, one of my interesting cases uh, was a 23 year old myopic female. She came in with chronic complaints of chronic night glare, uh, gotten worse the last several months. She had some family history of AMD, and she was kind of worried about that. She was in good health, just some migraines, things like that. Um, she had she got some new glasses, uh, but she had persim- persistent symptoms of poor night vision and lots of glare. Despite that, so I mean, this is one of those twenty, and she saw twenty twenty in each eye. Her refraction was pretty mild, so this is one of those patients you ask, well. What do I do with this 2020 unhappy patient? We all have these patients. So we looked carefully. We did an OPD three, did maps, and you know, could not find any pathology to explain other than we measured contrast sensitivity and we found it was three point two percent. So for her age, that's definitely suboptimal. It was three point two percent in the right eye, it was three point two percent in the left eye. We measured it a couple of times at a couple of different visits. It was very consistent. So we talked about um, the, mac- the potential improvement in her contrast sensitivity through nutrition. I prescribed the triple carotenoid supplement, uh, 10-10-2 ratio. She took it faithfully every day. Uh, we had measured her macular pigment density uh, with the instrument we were using back then, which was the a densitometer, and it was low initially, and it started improving Uh, But she came back in a little earlier than most patients would come back in, but she came in at eight weeks and she was noticing significant improvement in glare in only two months. And I asked her to rate that, I mean, scale one to 10, I mean, how much improvement are you really seeing? She rated it as a six out of 10 improvement
0: and when I measured her
1: her contrast sensitivity, it was 1.25% in her right eye. 1.6%. 1.6%. Wow. My staff measured this first because I do delegate this test at times as well. So I don't always do it myself. I have staff that know how to do it too. And to be honest, I was skeptical. But I went back, came back in, I tested it myself. I got exactly the same thing, 1.25%, 1. 1.6%, 1. much, much better. Now she's kind of in the excellent range. She went from, from suboptimal to excellent. And so, and then we tested it again at, at 12 weeks, a month later, got exactly the same thing. So very convincing evidence that this patient, now she had a history uh, of a very good diet when she was younger. She was mm-hmm. in another country. She came to the U.S. and stopped eating vegetables <laughs> and her nutritional levels went way down um and so and she was having these complaints and then she responded extremely well i can't promise you that every patient is going kind to of respond that well i wouldn't expect that but there have been reports in younger patients of that kind of robust rapid improvement if you look at the crest normal study so this is one of the research studies i mentioned earlier that really got my attention when it came out um, and the CREST uh, study was the you know, central retinal enrichment supplementation trial. So, this study used uh, you know, two arms, had a, it was placebo, a double uh, blind placebo controlled study. And the active group had 10 milligrams of lutein, 10 milligrams of mesozeaxanthin, and 2 milligrams of, of zeaxanthin, which we would know as MacuHealth. And after one year, uh, there was a significant improvement in contrast sensitivity, both statistically significant but also clinically significant improvement right at that 2100 target size. So the, the testing, I think they did test at 3 and 6 and 12 months. So by 12 months in that study, there were significant improvements in a large percentage of those who were taking the MACU Health. So that would be what I think you should set as your expectation. That it could be, you'll find likely some patients who report improvements um, in vision uh, sooner than that. Mm-hmm. But I think in terms of setting expectations, um, a 12-month, 10 to 12-month uh, interval before you might be able to measure improvements in contrast sensitivity would be typical. Um, okay. I have seen some patients who. Um, at one year, nutritional uh, supplementation really didn't show much, but they continued with it anyway. And at two years, they did. So, you know, I think if we could have done that study, stretched it for another year, it would have been great. A two-year study, I think, it just wasn't practical logistically and the cost that were right. involved. But um, I think it's you know important to stay the course uh, when you're doing that, and that's I think the expectation you would you would kind of set for the patient.
0: No, certainly, expectation. I'm curious. Have you, in your experience, seen where patients stop the nutrition? We use Mackey Health in the in the office as well. We believe in it, but say they do it for the year, they're happy, and then happy patients stop listening to us, and so they uh, they drop off. Do you see a decrease then in the the contrast sensitivity over over time?
1: I think if they stop, it's going to go down again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think one of the things you know, some patients may take your recommendation. And you know, take the, the supplement um, and say, Well, I've you know, taken it for a year, maybe that's all I need for a while. Um, if you can measure contrast sensitivity and tell them, Well, your contrast sensitivity last year was, you know, 2.5% or 32 and you gained a couple of lines here, you can see things fainter, fainter things you couldn't even see a year ago. Um, I think that encourages them to continue. There could be continued improvements, and then you have the long term benefits. Of just you know chronically good levels of macular pigment uh, that are doing these anti providing antioxidant protection, improved vision, and other benefits as well. So I think it does help reduce the attrition rate for patients who might tend to drop off after a while.
0: Yeah. Well, I like that it gives us a a way to test. It's it's always been my frustration with the, the the supplementation is you're taking it, you're taking it. And say we're tracking macular degeneration. You know, we just we don't want it to get worse, and we can measure by uh, looking at drusen or maybe doing a, a dark adaptation. But I think this is, is encouraging because it's it's quicker, more real, mm-hmm. and uh, and they can they can see it, if you will.
1: Right, and even in patients who have you know non advanced AMD, uh, the Crest AMD study showed that. Uh, visual acuity, you know, the supplementation trial comparing kind of two arms or the traditional errors with 25 milligrams of zinc and the other that included uh, mesozeaxanthin. Um, and those who had mesozeaxanthin, a greater percentage of those patients actually showed improvements in contrast sensitivity um, after the study was done. It was a two-year study, as I recall. So. But without measuring contrast sensitivity, you would not be able to verify the patient's Uh visual performance. Was that they were responding to the supplement? um, By in terms of visual acuity, at least. So if you have this other tool, uh, I think it gives you some insight that you just simply are lacking without it. There are a couple of other uh, cases. I think that um, yeah, I've actually put together. I have a talk, uh, I've called grand rounds, (laughs) contrast sensitivity, because I've had so many cases and uh, types of pathologies where I have discovered things that changed my management with patients once I measured their contrast sensitivity and saw how really it was. But there was a really interesting case I had of a patient who, a younger man who came in with um, optic neuritis. um, And He was diagnosed, I referred him out, he was diagnosed with MS, as many would be. Uh, But his visual acuity, uh, recorded through the neuro-ophthalmology notes I got, actually dove all the way down to count fingers. Wow. Um, And a year later, a year later, he came back to see me. Um, His visual acuity had returned all the way to 2020, which is really, really cool. Yeah, I mean, that's really cool. There are, you know, there's studies that show, yes, many patients will show significant improvements in visual acuity, you know, after the you know has calmed down and so forth. But this patient got all the way back. And if you just look at his photographs and you look at his nerve, it looks pretty normal. So when he came in for his testing, we were thrilled his acuity was that good and looking inside of his eye, his eye and knowing what he'd been through. But he was complaining about his vision. He said, you know, bothered a lot with lights and glare and and different things. So 2020, you know, what maybe you would be tempted to say is, well, your vision is 2020. You should be happy. (laughs) But when we measured his contrast sensitivity, it was 5%. That's significant visual impairment. And that explained perfectly why he was complaining. His other eye also came back to 2020. It was 4%. So wow. by having this tool in the office, I could have a good conversation with him where I understood what was going on, and then we could talk about what's you know what are we going to do here. But just being able to understand um, his symptoms a, you a know, measure of his contrast sensitivity was a really important part of his exam, um, and nothing else I did gave me that information. Um, I also had a patient, a very interesting 88-year-old female who just came back and referred out for cataract surgery lovely lady she came back in she was so happy measure acuity you know she was 20 20 in each eye Uh, this was her follow-up i think just a few weeks after her surgery and um i measured contrast sensitivity as i do at those visits just routinely when i was great Mm -hmm. um it was 3.2 percent um good for her age and after cataract surgery the other was 6.3 percent i thought hmm what am i missing here um you know, I looked at her implant, dilated her pupils, you know, looked inside. We did end up taking a photograph. You can see just a little faint area in the macula. I ordered an OCT and she had cystoid macular edema in the eye, the 6.3%. So it helped me not miss that. That would have been on a busy clinic day. It was really wow. subtle. She's seeing 2020. She's not complaining had I not measured contrast sensitivity. It would have been very easy just to have missed, and we we want to catch those, you know, CMEs early on. So she ended up developing the same thing in her other eye. Treated her, you know, she was uh, was taking Macu Health, put her on, you know, some steroids and NSAIDs. She ended up um, several weeks later, months later, when she came through this whole process, um, she was seeing, I think, better than 2020, and her contrast sensitivity was two percent in each eye, as I recall. And she was happy. She was so happy with her vision. I can imagine she'd be happy.
0: Well, the the key thing for me there was she wasn't complaining.
1: She wasn't Uh, complaining. Yeah. It's just easy to to, to miss. But because I took a moment to measure it and I was, you know, I went back and measured it again. Maybe I didn't push her hard enough. You know, maybe I didn't wait long enough. No, she couldn't see any better than that. It was because there was a problem that we then discovered with the OCT, uh, you know, a few minutes later. So that's, you know, the kind of thing that has, convinced me, wow, this is really worth doing these additional tests um, because I'm providing better patient care. I'm really understanding what my patients are seeing and what's affecting them, how much it's affecting them, what impact their particular situation, whatever the problem is, is having on their vision.
0: Well, I'm sure they, have, well, I know they appreciate it, but I'm, it, it definitely stands you apart. I don't know uh, too many docs that are routinely doing this. In fact, coming into the conversation, I was looking for the hey, when do we need to do this? And uh, I think you've convinced me that there's a whole aspect of the visual system that I'm just not looking at.
1: Yeah, I mean if you're if you're not willing to run, in, you know, to jump in and do it for every patient, I mean, get your feet wet on it. At least do do your patients for complaining or 2020 20 unhappy patients. Do your patients who, you know, are developing cataracts. You can better understand that, and you'll discover, I think, as you do that, reasons why you want to do it for more and more patients. But it would definitely be uh, a recommended thing. I think it should just be part. Of, I mean, we are the vision experts, you know, and yeah. I think by doing this, you can differentiate your practice because you're providing uh, the best visual performance measures, the, the best way to really understand how your patients uh, see. So I think it just improves your patient care, um, better, better outcomes, so It's pretty much minimal chair time or capital investments. And again, it helps drive the medical side of your practice as well. There are some codes. So um, there's no specific CPT code for contrast sensitivity. Um, And I would argue that there probably shouldn't be, unless we want one for visual acuities too. (laughs) But uh, there is an ICD-10 code. If you discover a patient with impaired contrast sensitivity at your exam, it's H53.72. Or glare sensitivity is H53.71. So when you have, let's say you put the patient on a supplement, you have now a medical diagnosis. You can have them come back in and measure the response. You can code the visit by time, um, mm-hmm. and also if they have impaired contrast sensitivity, those are legitimate codes for ordering things like visual fields and even ERG testing if you provide that in your office. So um, there are some ways that this also can uh, you can conduct additional medical testing as indicated and use these particular codes um, as as, you know, as indicated. So. Um, I think it's it's important to, to know that. So I know what I've given you today is a lot of details.
0: <laughs> and, <laughs> we like details, but yes, yes.
1: Yeah, so again, we can provide through the link. Um, I wrote an article. You can actually Google it. I'm sure. You, I'm sure and find it um, online. Uh, just optimizing real world visual performance. Just put you know my last name Roark. Google that, it'll come up um, from review of optometry, um, but that several pages and that will give you kind of like a, a white paper that describes a lot of what I've talked about today in terms of how you do the test, why you do the test and how to interpret it. Because I think we all have to be really comfortable with doing those things um, before we're going to be ready to implement it.
0: Awesome. And we will link that uh, that article in the, the show notes. So uh, if you to want to do it the easy way and not have to Google it? You can just go to the show notes and uh, and click it, as, along Perfect. with a couple of the other resources that we've we've discussed. No, Mark, this has been uh, incredibly eye opening, no pun intended. But uh, <laughs> it, 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 I feel bad, and I've already thought of, of the handful of patients that I'm, I'm struggling with, or I've told that this is just the best we can do. Uh, those, especially those young, you know, not overly satisfied 2020 patients.
1: Correct. And even some uh, of your patients who've had LASIK surgery, mm-hmm. where their corneal topography you see, um, they have some areas where they're getting a lot of peripheral, you know, areas that aren't in good focus at the edge of their pupil. You'll find those patients, um, you can measure the contrast. And I've even done this where I'll give them a drop of maybe alpha GMP, make the pupil smaller. Their contrast improves dramatically. And yeah. you can even, you know, there's all kinds of ways you can use this tool. To help various situations, um, and I'm actually happy to uh, field any questions for anybody who wants to. You know, I'd like to see more ODs doing this um, because I think it's such a valuable tool that we that we have. So my email address is just my name, Mark Roark, M-A-R-K, R-O-A-R-K. dot od at gmail.com. Um, or if you want to chat, I'm happy you can text me at 317-410-9820 and we can set up a time to chat about this as well. So um, yeah, it's an area of of great interest and uh, I think one I'm, I'm anxious for more people to benefit from.